This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I'm Andy Santanello, and I've got Jenna with me today. Hello, Jenna. Hello, Andy. Glad to be here. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing okay. Not bad for a Friday. And we're really, really fortunate to have uh, a really, um, I think, important uh, ACT and um, anxiety disorders researcher and um, uh, somebody that I uh, recently got to take an online course with. A really fantastic ACT for anxiety course on Praxis. If you haven't gotten a chance to uh, check that out, please do. Um, Our special guest today, uh, Mike Tuwick. Hi, Mike. Hi, thanks for having me here. Yeah, thanks for being here. Do you want to tell um, our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. So I'm a professor of psychology at Utah State, uh, which is in Logan, Utah, about an hour north of Salt Lake. And, you know, career-wise, I've always kind of been doing ACT, how to do exposure therapy from an ACT model for pretty much all the anxiety disorders and OCD. OCD might be my favorite one, but... I've done work um, in all of them. And then, you know, kind of a big part of my career, maybe for the last 10 years, is teaching people how to do this work. So I run practicums, I do workshops, I try to write pieces, you know, that people could read that would help them understand how to do this. And yeah, so sort of beginning of my career, we were sort of working on these ideas and they got to a place. And now I, I spend a little bit more time trying to teach people how to do it. Well, fantastic. You're in the right place because we are in the business of teaching people, hopefully how to do evidence-based psychotherapy and getting them excited about it. And um, so today we were going to talk a little bit about uh, exposure techniques. And I thought maybe a good place to start with would be just asking you, what is exposure? And, you know, also why might we want to consider using it as clinicians when we're working with clients who, you know, present with anxiety? I'll happily say uh, some pieces and and then just ask more questions because I know you know if you type in exposure therapy you're going to find a bunch of books so this mm-hmm. answer is a yeah it's a it's a book length kind of issue so exposure as like a technique it is this process of interacting with whatever the thing is that produces anxiety or fear you know so for like social phobia this might be a particular type of social situation uh, for someone with a trauma history it could be things related to the trauma, things like the trauma. Um, In OCD, it could be stimuli, you know, that bring on the obsession. So it's this practice of interacting with those things. And I think this is the key part. It's like you interact with them in a certain way that you learn something. And the, the how do you interact with them and what do you learn? There's a lot of different models and there's a bunch of different ways people do this work. And we can talk about the different models, but... Uh, as a short answer, it's this part of your practice that's purposefully planning time to, within session, go interact with these things and get better at it. And then also purposely planning between sessions, going and interacting with these things that are difficult for you. 
So actually, that's a great segue. You mentioned that there are different models of exposure. And I think not not everyone knows that. They might be familiar with one, but now there's right. sort of various models. Maybe just a thumbnail sketch of, um, you know, kind of the, the models that you teach about and talk about um, and what makes them the same and what makes them more importantly different. Yeah, I'll just in a way go with maybe two models here. So there's the... Um, traditional behavioral model that like uh, Edna Foa and um, Gail Steckety, uh, I think uh, emotional, emotional processing, emotional processing, processing. Yeah. And, um, you know, that model was the one that I would have learned a long time ago. And it's really based off of kind of a two factor theory. Right. And one is that if you um, extinguish avoidance responses, so like get people to enter the feared situation and stay there. Don't engage in avoidance either inside their body by like, you know, singing a song or something or actually escaping it. And if you stay in that situation, then here's the other factor. You will habituate to it and then you'll start having less of an emotional response in that situation. So if I was afraid of a snake, I go stand in front of a snake and, you know, soak it up and, and my body does its thing. And then eventually that whole thing starts to habituate. And if I practice a lot in a lot of different situations, I'll, I'll have that growth. Right? I won't be so reactive to it. And more and more, um, research is indicating that it's not the amount of time in a feared situation and the amount of fear that comes up and the amount of habituation that occurs. It's that the more important variable in all this is how open you are to that, to whatever's happening in your body. And the more open you can become and the better you can get at having that feeling, then you're better at functioning whenever that comes up. So Michelle Krask and, you know, people who work in my area where everyone's sort of leaning towards that acceptance or tolerance model and that building acceptance or tolerance is probably more important than facilitating habituation. And I'd say in the last five years, I mean, I could probably find a dozen studies that that keep saying one's ability to be open to accept or tolerate, however we want to talk about it, is better is a better predictor of outcomes. So if I can just say like 10 more seconds about it, that this is where exposure exercises are important. You can't talk about this. You actually have to go practice it. So those are kind of the two big models that are out there. So sort of the behavioral one or the acceptance tolerance one, and they do kind of matching exercises, but what we talk about, what we focus on, what we teach ends up being different. It, it seems like I, I'm glad that you said that because if you're kind of looking in from the outside and you look at an exposure, you know, like a bit of a therapy clip and you know, the therapist is working with a client doing exposure. It might look like you're doing similar things. Mm -hmm. It seems like though the, uh, the rationale and sort of the buildup and maybe some of the things you do before exposure. Right. And then maybe you're having the client practice during the exposure, which might be covert is different. And I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about, uh, what might be going on before exposure right. in the different models and maybe like during it. So before, if I was doing a behavioral model, I'd actually draw these graphs. I'd say, we're going to enter this situation. I'm going to work with you to get your distress, your kind of anxiety feeling up to whatever, 60 or 70%. And 
And then I'm going to keep kind of poking to keep it up there until you get used to it. And then once you get used to it, then we'll call the session. Um, so a lot of our conversation is about how well are you building that up? How high are you keeping it? And it's almost like if you try to keep it there, eventually it, it dissipates. And anyone who's been in a nerve wracking situation probably can appreciate this. Whereas if I was doing a more acceptance based thing, I'd say we're going to go into a situation that's difficult for you. And our job is to get good at being in the situation. We're going to practice finding a home for this feeling. So, you know, like, let's go in. And I might even say, are you feeling it? Is it there? Okay, good. But then one of the differences I see is I talk a lot during the acceptance one because I'm teaching them how to have it. And, and because it's only stuff they do in their body, I can't make them watch a little bit, but I have to ask a lot of questions. So I'll say like, where is it showing up? What's it like? How big is it? And what are you doing with it? And how would it, would it be different to make more room for it right now? Okay. And then I might wait, you know, 30 seconds and I'll say, now, what are you doing right now? That's pushing it away a little bit. How do you open up to it a bit more? What's it like? Tell me, you know, what size it is, how big it is, what thoughts don't you want to have right now? And I'll, I'll keep coaching how to have it be there. And, and then one of the maybe differences, the session ends when we run out of time because I don't need it to go down. I just need them to practice having it. And, um, a good example, and I'll say his name because I think it's a compliment to him. I was doing these projects with John Abramowitz, who's one of the best OCD anxiety researchers out there. And he said, I like these strategies, strategies you're teaching because it's like you have a bunch of ways to do response prevention, you know, and they call it exposure with response prevention. You're giving me lots of nice moves to tell them how to leave it there. And he said, sort of before we would just say, you got to let it be there. Don't, don't make it go away but we had no ways to like really further that. And he's like, you've got books on how to, how to have it. So that's you, a big part. Do you, I mean, I think it'd be helpful. Sometimes it's helpful to hear like specific examples. If you have, you know, in what you just talked about, even with OCD, have, how has that played out? And obviously you can make it a general one, right. but you know, just maybe helping our listeners really see a very specific example of what that might look like would be awesome. So if I was doing an exposure, what are some of the lines that I might say or how I might talk someone through it? Talk someone through it. And, you know, with the response, response prevention piece, you know, you talked about all these different avenues you might take to yeah. work with that. It just, if, if, I mean, I don't know if you can think of something yeah. you've worked with or a teaching example you give, but I think those concrete examples sometimes are really helpful. Well, one that, that I use a lot and my students do laugh at me because I go back to sports a lot partially because I like them, but I think they're good metaphors. But I'll say, um, let's say it's a, a client with a germ-based thing that, um, you know, she's afraid that she'll, she'll have some contaminant on her. And by touching certain things, then she could make someone sick or even kill somebody. So we might, um, like, we might do an exposure where we walk around and we touch doorknobs and we touch handrails and. Um, we get things dirty that the community accepts being dirty, right? But it's on her because she got <laughs> right. them dirty. And so I might say, okay, we're going to go touch this railing. And she'll say, I, don't, I really don't want to do it. And, and I'll say, okay, that right there is, it's like, you're an athlete. Let's assume she likes sports. 
like you're the athlete out on the court and, and these are the opposing fans screaming at you right now. So you know what you got to do. And that's touch the handrail because people touch handrails and all these people are going to scream at you that you can't do it. You're going to kill someone. And just like a great athlete, it's their job to just let that noise be there. And my understanding is even great athletes, uh, when they practice at home, they'll have stuff in the back and they'll have speakers with, with noise and they get, they get good at, at living with that. Actually, I go to basketball games and when people are doing the shoot around, their teammates will put their hands in their faces just to, cause that's the game, right? There's people right there in your way. So yeah. you and I need to get good at living with all these distractions and noises. I love, I mean, we, we're big fans of metaphors of that. That's a great one. <laughs> we are, we love metaphors. It's like, no. <laughs> um, it, it reminds me of a, an exposure session that I did with one of, um, someone recently around social anxiety and we uh, were going through the second or third round of small talk. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I asked him, you know, what about this next, you know, bit of exposure? What, what do you want to do here? Do you want to pick a tough topic for you? Do you want to pick a, an easier topic? And he said, um, I want to pick something really hard. Like, you know, if you're training for running, you, you right. put the like oxygen restricting mask on. I want to do something like that. Yeah. You know, so I, I love those sports metaphors too. And it's sort of, but one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about is I know that when uh, exposure tends to be part of some of the act protocols you've worked on before you get into exposure, there's a fair amount of training and psychological right. flexibility skills. Right. And so two things, I was curious if you could give us a really quick and dirty definition of psychological flexibility. Mm -hmm. And then, um, asking for a friend, are there, you know, particular <laughs> diffusion or willingness exercises that right. you really, really like to do? Like there is or your go-tos when working with anxiety disorders. So I'll go for it. So psychological flexibility is the thing we teach and act. So I, a way of thinking about it is in the traditional behavioral model, you might say a reduction in fear response is, is, um, it's an outcome and a process, but it's like the thing we're trying to teach. Whereas if you're doing an act-based exposure, you'd say, I want the person to learn how to be psychologically flexible. So in a weird way, there really isn't a care for how high or low the internal stuff is. But we all know if you start, if you start ignoring it, allowing it to be there, not engaging with it, it's going to be less. But I'm not actually bothered if it comes back at times. It's just, can you handle it when it comes back? Um, so psychological flexibility is the thing that I want people to learn in exposures from an ACT model. And what psychological flexibility is, it's you know the ability to be present with your thoughts and feelings, see them as just thoughts and feelings, even if they're very gross, find meaning in doing this work, um, allowing those thoughts and feelings to be there. And then when all that, while you're doing all those things, being aware of what's important to your life and being able to go in those directions. So maybe in a very simple way, it's being able to do whatever you want to do, regardless of what's happening inside, whether you feel motivated for it or you feel incredibly scared of it, that you still have the ability to just do what you want to do. And how do I like to teach it? Um, you are right, Andy, that I don't want to go into an exposure exercise unless the client knows how to allow their stuff to be there. 
Because if you don't teach that, regardless of the model, as soon as the person gets in a like a high valence situation, they'll just they'll just start to shut down and avoid and suppress and you know do what we all normally do in difficult situations. That I want them to walk into this difficult situation and be ready to feel what they're going to feel and maybe even be motivated to do that. Um, you know, go to ones uh, besides sports things. I, okay, I'll give two answers. A canned one that I use a lot is that pastors on the bus. And to the few people who don't know it, um, there's actually some really nice YouTube videos out there. You can just Google pastors on the bus act. Yeah, we will include idea. some of them when uh, we, with our show notes. There's oh, yeah. That great one. I can't remember who uh, who did it, but it's um, it's the cartoon version of it. Have you seen that one? Yeah. Well, I have. And there's um, an Irish group who made it into a, this one's really cute, like a choose your own adventure. So you do the first uh-huh. step and then you can pick the next. And it, when you click on it, it goes to the next video. And I think it's like three or four steps. All right, acties. Not all of us know what you're talking <laughs> okay, about. So okay. well, well, it's going to be in the show notes, Jenna. Okay, it's going to be in the show notes. But you got to explain so a little all... bit. I'm <laughs> okay, here so... to make sure they don't go too, too far into act talk without the rest of us keeping up. Right. So Jenna, what it would be is, is I'd say to the client, um, you know, you hop on a bus and on the front, like all buses say where they're going, this one says where you want to go. So this might be, I want to go out to dinner with my boyfriend, or I want to uh, give this talk in front of people. It's like something that's important to you, but you've been struggling to go in that direction. And this bus has a weird rule that the passengers may not cross the yellow line. They must, 100,000%, they, they stay in the back. But back there are all your thoughts and feelings that boss you around. So anxiety, self-judgments, you stink at this, all that kind of stuff. So as you start driving, the passengers will will yell at you and they'll tell you what to do and they'll tell you you're going to crash and that you can't do it. And and they could get really horrible um, depending on what the issue is. And you have a couple options. You can pull over. um, You can turn around and go fight with them. You can try to kick them off. You can go the direction they want to go and they'll be quiet. And you can... You know, you can kind of guess that the idea here is you drive the way you want to drive, but part of you being the bus driver is your passengers are going to be loud and they're going to say mean and scary things. And I'd love for you to get good at driving your bus with all this noise in the back and people can learn how to do it. It's just, you know, it's different than they've been doing it. Thank you. That was awesome. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, you know, also along those lines, I know I was sort of putting you on the spot and I wasn't Uh sort of, I was definitely putting you on the spot. So I appreciate you humoring me. The the other part of it too, is I know that, um, a question like that is, is going to be a different, the answer to that's going to probably be different depending on the client you're working with, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the anxiety disorder they're working with. And actually one of the things that took me a little bit by surprise when I was um, going through the ACT for Anxiety course, um, because ACT tends to be so transdiagnostic and more focused yeah. on process, you had a, a section in there about why anxiety disorders are important and talking about the core fears oh, right. in, in each one, which I, I thought was really useful. So, I, I mean, why is it important to get a good sense of what flavor of anxiety disorder you're working with in terms of understanding those core fears? How might that help you to better conceptualize and plan for exposure? 
Right. So in, and I don't know if I'm going outside of what other people say. Um, you know, I kind of forget where I learned this by now my schooling was 15 years ago. And then I've learned from a lot of other people since then, but, um, you know, every anxiety disorder shows up in its own way, but then even within each anxiety disorder, the way the person struggles is their own. And sometimes I find they don't even know how they struggle. They just are in it and they found their moves, but they're not even sure what it's about. So with each client, I think it's really valuable to talk with them for a long time about what is the the thing that you're anxious about? Why, like, why are you really anxious about that? And like, what would be the worst thing that would happen? And it's like really digging into it and truly getting the function of their anxiety issue. So um, if we just go back to maybe that same OCD example, so the person might say, I have a problem touching things out in public because of germs. Okay. And somebody might be like, all right, let's go interact with germs. But what about germs? And for this person, it's my germs going on them. So that would really affect the way you're going to do an exposure. So it's not about her getting contaminated. It's about these contaminants going on to other people. So, but then it's even more, it's like, well, what would happen if it would get on them? And this, my client might even have to dig into, well, what is the really big thing? And honestly, like when I think of most of my clients, it'll take like two or three questions and it may go all the way to, I'll kill someone and I'll be morally responsible. And if I believe in heaven, well, then that was on me that like I killed someone and that's going to affect me for eternity. Right. So getting what the the anxiety is really about, then you're going to want to set up exercises that get at that stuff um, and have conversations around those issues. But if you didn't follow those five steps down, then you're just out there playing with germs and you're not really like hitting the important core pieces. And then it leads to like, you know, our discussions, we're going to have the most success talking about afterlife. Like if that's really where this all ends up, like we might as well talk about that. And what does this client do with the fears around that and the anxiety and what cognitions do you have about that? And then I'll even say, you know, people worry about, oh, did I hit everything I need to? Well, that that doesn't matter as much if you're hitting the core functional thing, because then it'll it'll broaden out to all the issues. And it's the same for all anxiety disorders. People aren't just social anxiety. You're not just afraid of people. There's a certain story there that's unique to each person. And really spending the time to find out that story mm-hmm. makes a ton of sense. You know, and I, I, you're talking to two believers here, so we, we don't need convincing about exposure and the value of it. And, um, but I think it gets a bad rap sometimes. I think yeah. providers, there are certain beliefs and assumptions about what's going to happen if I do this with a client and a client being ready enough to, you know, like, you know, a lot of, I I train PE and we spend a lot of time with our Uh, consultants on like, but they're not ready, but they're not ready, but they're not ready. And and so sort of, there's fear, there's this fear (laughs) about exposing people to, to fear. Um, You know, what, why do you think that is? And and if you could kind of tell our listeners why this is a critical piece of their, you know, might be a critical piece of their work, that would be that would be helpful. Right. And that, I mean, that's a long thing too. 
I mean, maybe one place we could start is exposure therapy was probably a really bad name for this work. <laughs> like the Such worst marketing ever. Oh, wait, let's call it prolonged exposure. <laughs> yeah. Make it even more exciting to do. Right, right. I mean, so if we if we just called it like practicing being with your scary things or learning how to handle scary events or getting better at difficult situations, right? That would I mean, in a way, that's what we're doing. And it doesn't have that that name. Um, I think some of the old models of like we we want like an old behavioral model where it's like we want to build up as much intensity so that the person can can get used to it. And then in there was, well, why don't we go really high? Because if they get used to an 11 out of 10, well, then then the threes are going to seem really simple. And um, right. So then you saw people being in difficult situations. And I don't want to necessarily say distressing because distressing would mean they couldn't handle it. A lot of us can handle difficult situations. Um, and I used to kind of think that it could be overwhelming for clients. But then when I started working in the anxieties and going to, you know, the anxiety conferences and the cognitive behavior therapy conferences, what I really found was people who do exposure therapy are wonderful, kind, compassionate, fun, hilarious therapists. And if you do, if you practice being with your difficult stuff with these people who have done it a lot, they have found really fun ways to do it. And, and the clients enjoy it. And I'll say half my clients get way into it and start really going. It becomes their own challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they see the meaning behind it. And um, so I think it's just like, like a bad marketing or there were two or three experiences along the way where it was like overwhelming for somebody. And then they called it because I've done panic disorder treatment where people have panic attacks and, and it's a little bit ugly, but you know, I can sort of conceptualize that as, all right, well, like we went pretty far and this person um, had a strong reaction and maybe we hadn't practiced psychological flexibility quite enough that they knew what to do with that strong reaction. And, you know, um, we'll like back it off just a little bit. Yeah, that's what we always say. Sometimes the dog bites, but we can still, you know, kind of recover and and mm-hmm. work with that. And I think when you um, when you're speaking about clients kind of getting into it and taking that on, you know, obviously our focus is working with military connected clients, um, and a lot of a lot of the work I did with prolonged exposure, I'm not currently doing it, was okay. with the active duty population, and. Um, you know, thinking about who's in front of you too. And I'm not saying it's only for specific people, but I do think, especially with some service members and veterans, the culture has really instilled a, we have an agenda, we have tasks we're going to do. We are, uh-huh. um, you know, kind of very active in taking on things um, and really difficult things and hanging in there with those things and um, coming out the other side that sometimes even if you're as a therapist feeling uncertain about whether this is a good fit for you or whether you should learn more about this, thinking about who you're treating um, and why it may be a great, a great fit for the person in front of you. I can throw out one thing that I, um, I actually heard this uh, from my colleague Anu and she, she worked out at, um, at Nafola's shop for a while. And she said that 
like therapists kind of have to go through their own exposure therapy of, of like doing the 100%. work. 100%. Like you do the work and okay, that was like a little hard. And then you do it five more times and you're like, okay, I'm kind of getting this. And then after the 20th time, you know, you're just, you're just fist pumping at that point or right. Whatever. Like we, yeah. you know, this, and you have so much confidence that they'll walk out the other end and proved that, that you feel okay with, um, helping your client do something big. And I know, I'll just say one more thing. I, I know sometimes even when I have a client come in for session, it's like, oh, because I have a private practice too. It's like, yeah, I, I can see why just talking today would be nice. Like, it's just so simple to chill here versus going and doing an exercise. And they're not aversive. They're just more. It's like a little more work. Um, but I think that's where a lot of the game shows up. Yeah, that, uh, you know, getting therapists to try exposure therapy, it reminds me of when I was on my last practicum before internship, I uh, got a chance to work with a psychologist named John, Jonathan Grayson. Oh, yeah. And uh, he, yeah, he, um, he's great. He's great. Um, but he, you know, we, we uh, part of what we did at practicum is we uh, co-facilitated with some of the other interns um, and some um some folks who were, you know, living with OCD, uh, they had a support group. And, you know, one of the things that the president would always say, the, you know, the person who is um, pretty far along in their treatment of OCD would say is that uh, it's harder to get therapists to do this treatment with a, with us than it is for us to be willing <laughs> to do it, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think like anything though, I, I really appreciate what you had to say there about the more that you, if you're wary about doing this work and you're a therapist, try it out, try it out a couple of times. And if you're asking your clients to do big things and you can see them making big changes, yeah, then that's going to help you to feel like a little bit more confident, even if your mind is saying like, eh, is this okay to do? Can I have one thing that's worth putting out there. So, um, and I can give you the link to the study. I did a study with Joanna Arch and, and we, whatever, it was a pretty high number like 600 people or something were in the study. I hope I'm not wrong. And, and we asked them what they thought about this description of exposure therapy for social anxiety disorder. So these were, you know, people in the community. It's like this really large percent were just neutral on it. They're like, that sounds fine. Hmm. You know, and this percent that were like, that sounds scary was quite low. And then there's this other big chunk that not big, but like if it's 15%, then there's another 15% who are like, Oh, that sounds really great. But the truth is most of our clients are like, yeah, do what you need to do. You know, I was just saying to one of my prac students, we're not Googling our dentist procedures. We just walk in and we're like, well, you know what you're doing, you know? And I think a lot of people are actually like that with a, a therapist. They're like, well, I'm here to see you. And you, I assume know what to do here, lay it out for me. And then when you give a good rationale, all those numbers go up. If you just mm -hmm. can explain why we're going to do what we're going to do. The rationale part of it, and I really appreciate or appreciated how earlier you were talking about really asking a lot of questions, not skimping on assessment. Both mm -hmm. of those things seem really important rather than just kind of jumping right into playing with terms like you were yeah, saying right. before. So, uh, you know, we really appreciate you being on the podcast and we always like to end our episodes with some actionable intel. So maybe two or three practical tips for clinicians who maybe want to either start doing uh, or incorporating exposure 
into their work uh, mm -hmm. or who maybe want to take that work to the next level, maybe, maybe towards a psychological flexibility model. Um, so do you have any thoughts for our yeah, listeners? Yeah, I do. I do. And, and uh, we already talked about one of them. And I'd say, you know, spend a little more time with your client, figuring out what they're really afraid of. And it almost always goes down to a core thing. And then what I find additionally useful about that is once they see what that core thing they're afraid of, they'll find a lot of moves they're doing in their life that are about avoiding that. So if, um, like if I have a client with OCD who is afraid of harming someone in some way, then I'll say, okay, well, talk to me about how you drive. How do you walk? Um, like, how do you flush the toilet? Where do you put your toothbrush? And they'll probably be doing something in every one of those places to keep people safe. And it's really useful to help them understand that. Because otherwise, they're doing these micro compulsions all day long that they thought were just what people do. But no, the rest of us don't worry about how we flush a toilet or where we set our toothbrush or we just do. Um, and then they can find all these important chances. I think the next thing, if there is a actionable move it's get clear on if you're going to do an, an exposure exercise why um, or like why you're doing it and what you want your client to learn because i repeat to my clients every time before we do one or at the beginning uh something like okay we're going to go practice building your skills at having distress so we're going to go out there and we're going to you know Futs with things that are germy. And I don't really care how high or low things are for you, but we're going to get better at having what you have so that if we get better here, then when an important life situation shows up, you'll have those skills. So I would figure out that rationale so that you can just say it. Um, and then the last thing is if you, you know, if you picture adding exposure being like a half an hour event or an hour long event, it doesn't have to be, um, it can be five minutes. And, and I definitely do exposures like that with clients. Um, like I was just thinking, so I'm right. I don't know if this will be visual or if your podcast is totally. So, uh, like I'm just at the university and the clinic that I oversee is down one floor for social phobia experiments. Um, or exposures, they'll bring their clients up to me. And they're like, yeah, you can go talk to my supervisor. And the person will come in, we'll have a five minute conversation and they leave. And then they go back and they talk about what that was like. What'd you do? How'd you handle it? How do you want to handle it differently next time? And it was just five minutes. It wasn't a huge thing. Um, so that's it, that you can start real reasonable, real small, and it can lead to you know, if you both get comfortable with it, you can go to bigger ones. I've definitely wandered campus for the whole hour, um, but it doesn't have to be there. Excellent. Um, well, we both are fans and are so glad that you came today um, and enjoyed our discussion. I definitely want to take a look at that article you referenced. I'm so, uh, I want, I want to use that in consultation next week. Okay. Um, cause I think it, I think the data is super compelling and I, and I like that somebody actually looked at that. Um, 
but uh, we will we will be sure to add some links. And thank you for taking the time today to to talk with us. And hopefully, maybe someday we'll be able to have you back again. I also appreciated Andy and Mike your ability to kind of you know Hexaflex didn't come into this conversation once, so um, I, I appreciate that. And we uh, do hope listeners that you'll. Um, enjoy today's podcast and you'll join us for the next episode. So thanks so much, Mike, for joining us and hope you have a fantastic rest of your actually weekend. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed being here too. And thanks as always, Andy too. Well, thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks for having me, Jenna. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time. 